Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for those in the auditorium joining us in person and especially those uh, joining us online. We are so happy you have decided to spend a little bit of your morning with us. Uh, today, we have two esteemed guests that I'm going to introduce in a moment. We're going to talk about competition with China and how a new naval concept called, or excuse me, a novel concept called naval statecraft can turn the tide and seize the initiative. And when, when Brent Sadler first started talking about naval statecraft, I was I'll confess to some skepticism. I thought about, you know, paneled conference rooms over in Foggy Bottom where we would rub our chins and, and talk about the problems of the world. But in fact, naval statecraft, as Brent Sadler defines it, is the synthesis of strategic objectives with national interests to form a course of action. And this is key because for, for, for far too long, American statecraft has not delivered. Notable failures include not deterring China from building man-made islands in the South China Sea from which it now bullies its neighbors and flaunts maritime laws. And Russia was indeed not deterred from invading Ukraine. These failures are in fact inviting even more military adventures by our adversaries that will stress our overtaxed military. And this overtaxed military, as we assess it in Heritage Foundation's index of US military strength last year, assess the military as weak, unable to meet the warfighting requirements of the United States. And this situation makes it even more imperative that a new path be taken with regards to our security and our interests abroad. Our guest today brings substantial experience and insights to this challenge. Ambassador Kenneth Braithwaite served as the 77th Secretary of the Navy from May 2020 to January of 2021, and before that, the ambassador to Norway from February 2018 to May 2020. And these roles, his experience in naval operations clearly prepared him for taking the helm of the Navy. As a former, maybe you're always a naval aviator, he has operational experience conducting maritime patrols in the Pacific. And later, as a public affairs specialist, he had deployed to the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, and led strategic communications while forward deployed in 20, 2002 and supported combat operations in Iraq and to Pakistan as director of strategic communications at a sensitive time in our nation's war on terror. He retired from the Navy as a rear admiral in 2011, going on to a successful business career until he later returned to government service. And our second guest, Captain Brent Sadler, retired served 26 years as a nuclear submariner and a foreign affairs officer, retiring from the Navy in August of 2020. During his naval career, he deployed numerous times to the Pacific. He was based several times in Japan and served as a military diplomat in Southeast Asia. He's also a veteran of the interagency process, assigned to several senior naval flag officer personal staffs and advised senior defense officials. And I should note he is now our senior fellow for naval warfare here at the Heritage Foundation, and most significantly for today, the author of this book, which we're gonna talk about today, US Naval, State, US Naval Power in the 21st Century. 
Uh, before I turn things over to our first speaker, the ambassador, for his prepared comments, I want to remind our audience, both in the room here and online, that you have the opportunity to submit questions, and I encourage you to do so. If you're online, there's a, a tab on your application which will allow you to send a question right to this auditorium. We will endeavor uh, to get those questions uh, to our guests uh, when we get to that portion of the program. And then if you're in the auditorium here, you have the opportunity, you'll just raise a hand and someone with a microphone uh, will come over to you. So at that moment, I'd, at this moment, I'd like to invite our guests to take the stage and the ambassador, I'd like to turn this over to you uh, for your prepared remarks. Well, good morning. Good morning. Real pleasure to be uh, back in Washington. I don't live too far from here, so uh, short trip down. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a storm on the horizon. And as a uh, lifelong sailor, um, we are not prepared for that storm. Our ship is not squared away, and we are not focused on what the threat is. Like it or not, great power competition is firmly on that horizon. And as I've mentioned to many audiences in the last year, not since the War of 1812, and that's pretty obscure. I'm asked often, Ken, why the War of 1812? Not since the War of 1812 has the United States been under the kind of pressures as we are today. In 1812, we were fighting the most powerful nation in the world, Great Britain. They had 100 ships to our one, and they could have destroyed us if they had focused their full power upon us. But fortunately for us, they were engaged in a greater conflict uh, on the continent of Europe against a guy named Napoleon, and therefore we got a pass. We got a draw, and we were allowed to move on, and not since that time have we been up against a potential adversary that can eliminate our sovereignty until today. Today, we face the potential of having our very freedoms threatened by a nation that is much different and has a different perspective than we do. If we think that we defeated communism when the wall came down in the early 1990s, we are sorely mistaken. I'd like to ask audiences if they know who Xi Jinping's father was. The only other time that uh, somebody got that question right was when I was speaking in Italy. Um, yes, Xi Jinping's father, Jing Shongshao, was one of Mao's right-hand lieutenants. He helped to build the People's Republic of China to what it is today. He set up the sanctuary when the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek pushed Mao back across China in 1947 and then helped him rebuild the Red Army so that Mao came back and defeated Chiang Kai-shek and forced the KMT off of mainland China onto what is, as we know, Taiwan. So I ask you then, how influential is your father to you? My father was very influential to me. So the first wave at Normandy, third landing craft to touch the sand. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, you saw what my father lived through, never really talked about it. But his patriotism, his service above self, inspired me in my service to our nation. So I would argue that, yes, your father is very influential. And so we are up against a new China that has a devout Maoist at its helm. 
China has always been a land-centric nation, um, at least for the recent past, um, and has focused on its army. That changed about 10 years ago when I believe Xi Jinping read Alfred Thayer Mahan and the influence of sea power upon history, which teaches us that every great nation is first and foremost a maritime nation. Because shortly thereafter, China pivoted to the sea and began to build a navy second to none. Today, as we know, they are the largest, they have the largest navy in the world. And there is some debate as to the capability, but as I learned from one of my dear uh, aides, there is a quality in quantity. So why do you build the largest navy in the world? You do so to influence events, not just in your own home waters, but around the world. You do it for force projection. Thankfully, the U.S. has awoken. Took us a little bit of time, but I think we recognize the threat that China poses for what it is today. But this has caused another concern, at least for me. America, our culture, we're very emotional. We like to pivot from one side to the other. We don't necessarily find comfort being in the middle because we're an emotional nation. We're driven by emotional issues, right? So today, we have pushed that pendulum to take on an anti-Chinese um, approach, which I believe is even more of a threat than China is itself. Because if you set up a potential adversary to be your enemy, as the United States did in 1940 with the Empire of Japan, it's only a matter of time before that adversary becomes your enemy. So we need a balanced approach. We need to understand in this new era of great power competition that China is going to rise. And I would argue that the world is not an apex. It is a plateau where we can figure out how to live, how to exist, and how to flourish together. But you can only do that from a position of strength. We've learned throughout history that it is the strong nations that have the ability to back up what's important to them, for us, our freedoms, with strong defense. And therefore, I believe that that defense resides in our ability to build a capable Navy that can guarantee our interests around the globe. As my hero, the 26th president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, once said, a good Navy is not a provocation to war. It is the surest guarantor of peace. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. And now we'll hear from uh, Captain Sadler. Brent. Uh, thank you again, uh, Tom, for once again a very kind introduction. And most importantly to, uh, I guess, 
friend for several years now and collaborateur of many new ideas on the Navy. Uh, thank you again for making the time today to be with us here in Washington, D.C., Ambassador Brathwaite. And, and your experience as Secretary of the Navy is something that is inspired. And as you'll see in the pages of the book, actually sh shines through. And one, one idea I'll just put up in the front, bottom line of front, is there still is a need to get a first fleet. And I think we hopefully will get to some of that in the Q&A. So as Tom mentioned, my name is Brent Seiler. I'm the Senior Research Fellow here for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology. But a labor of love that predates many years before I got to Heritage. And what in some small motion or measure is in this book is this notion called naval statecraft. And as, as the ambassador is mentioning, it's a very complex time in the, in the world's history that we're in right now. And it's not, it's not a black and white kind of competition. It actually has shades of gray across which we have to compete that looks like open conflict, but also has opportunities for engagement and opportunities, oftentimes not in a linear fashion. And what do I mean by this? South China Sea will come back again time and time again in the conversation, and it animates much of what's in the book. And for the book, the trigger for me was an awareness that China is not a partner it is more than just an adversary. Uh, it's something that we've never had to face in our nation's history. It is an economic and an industrial behemoth, and it has a military might behind it to put power behind where its words are. And the communist vision of the world is not compatible with the one in which the West stands for, liberal economic standards of free markets and freedom of navigation. But in 2019, Living with a China moving forward in a very gradual and grudging kind of movement to a Western, supposed Western notion, uh, was shattered, shattered by the protesters in Hong Kong in 2019. And what had only been kind of really a, a straw man or a string, a hope that there could be a peaceful resolution to the dispute across the Taiwan Straits became the truth was being told to the lie and it no longer was possible to have one country, two systems. It has completely been bankrupted. And that reality engendered a need to write, to get the idea out that we have to take the Chinese Communist Party for what it is, an ideology that is an anthema to everything the United States and free markets stand for. Now, there is also an urgency to this. This is not something that we have a decade to deal with. Though in the book, it talk about building the Navy uh, in about a 10-plus year period, there is no urgency or in the current administration, the previous administrations, to get to the Navy that we need. And it's going to take several years to do it. The man who most importantly brought this to light, and it still echoes, and I don't think at the time that he thought how much it would echo and reverberate, because there's a lot of intelligence and there's a lot of analysis behind his statements, and that was the so-called Davidson window of 2027, a peak danger this decade, a, dis a decisive decade, some will say but a very dangerous one nonetheless. So there's urgency as the Chinese in Beijing see their moment, their strategic window opening to maximum benefit advantage, and then start to rapidly close as this decade comes to a conclusion. So there's urgency to act. Building navies take time. So that means that today we have to start looking at building up our shipbuilding, our naval capacities, but most importantly in the here and now, we have to start thinking differently about how we employ all our tools of statecraft. And one of those is, of course, the Navy, which is the central part of the book, one that can be moved around the world where our adversaries are weakest or unexpected, and in order to do that, to seize the initiative, to put them on the back foot. 
Uh, I witnessed firsthand this play out in South China Sea and the island building. There was every indication that that was going to unfold, but because we didn't have the tools to actually start to push back, the Chinese were able to take the initiative. This concept, Naval Statecraft and Book, lays out what that, that construct would be. It requires a change in the organization of the government. It changes a new conceptualization of what statecraft is. It will mean that main state uh, and Foggy Bottom's gonna have to change their views and how they integrate with the Department of Defense. It's gonna require the Department of Defense to start to consider economic statecraft as something that they can influence and something that is a part of their playbook. And right now, we have cylinders of excellence that do not work across, despite how many years, we, last couple of years talking about integrated deterrence. So I will end that for the sake of time and say that, and again, this is Teddy Roosevelt. He gave a somewhat controversial speech at the Naval War College uh, before he went into the White House. And that is the diplomats must be the servants to the military. But the military at the same time serves the national interest, which is exercised through the voice of the diplomat. So as we look forward, the part that is most atrophied is not our diplomatic corps, though there certainly needs to be more presence in places like uh, South Pacific, but it's our naval, our naval arm, the one that's most visible and the one that can be moved around where the opportunities, most importantly, the opportunities prevent, uh, avail themselves for national interest to be pressed at the same time to move where risks start to arise. The war in Ukraine right now also makes it clear that this is not a singular game. The Navy, the nation needs to be ready for that surprise, that black swan moment. And having a mobile Navy can move from one side of the world to the other much more quickly and to keep our adversaries on edge and also understand that if an opportunity that they perceive, that we can close it very quickly. And so I look forward to the questions and the continued discussion and get into the details of the book and get into the details of what this naval statecraft concept is. Most importantly, what it's going to take to build the Navy that we need, the nation needs. So thank you. You know, uh, Brent said we're going to get into the details of the book, but frankly, in the 40 or whatever minutes we have left, it, it would not be possible. And so you'll find chapters in this book, and he didn't ask me to do this, but there's books on naval leadership. There's graphs and tables about how to build the fleet that America needs. There's details about a future Navy, you know, where does unmanned surface and underwater vehicles come in. And so I, even though we'll talk about this, and even though you may be listening to this event, that does not give you credit uh, for reading this book, because without reading this book, you won't get to some of those uh, great insights. So thanks, Brent. Thank you for that. So, uh, Ambassador, my first question is going to be for you, sir. And that is, you've sat in that chair in the in the E-ring in the Pentagon and and not very that, often. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yes. Well, maybe you just touched it a few times. But you know, I'm curious. You've been the Secretary of the Navy. How can uh, the Secretary of the Navy galvanize or lead a global maritime campaign? I mean, you are. It's an important position, but you're you know you are a senior official within the Department of Defense, which is a, a department of the within the federal government. How can that secretary lead a global campaign to challenge China's rewriting of the maritime rules based on order, a rules-based order that is founded firstly by freedom of navigation and secondarily equal treatment of all nations' maritime rights? It's a great question. Um, well, first and foremost, it's the Secretary's responsibility to lead that effort, right? To be that conduit between the professional naval officers, 
the flag wardroom in particular that you're working with the chief of naval operations and his staff. Um, and then to be the subject matter expert, if you will, back to the administration itself. Um, you're in a, you know, uh, that link um, that is beyond important for that understanding. Um, you know, my mentor was uh, Secretary John Lehman, um, who, if you go back and you see how he um, served in that role, um, you know, for me, that was um, kind of the person I wanted to emulate, right? That I wanted to be that conduit between the administration. And thankfully, you know, we were all about building a bigger Navy. Um, Today, I think there are more challenges. I mean, navies are very expensive to build. They're very expensive to operate, and they are very expensive to maintain. But it comes back to your beliefs, and I'm sure I haven't had the pleasure to read this book yet, Brent, but I will. Um, it's probably encapsulated in here. Um, there is no force within the Department of Defense that has the ability to provide that deterrent edge, um, and that's what the importance of the Navy is. Um, I had the uh, good fortune to serve as the ambassador to Norway, and uh, George Marshall came there, an army uh, general, of course, um, to receive the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his service as Secretary of State. Um, and uh, it was the first time that a military officer had ever received a peace prize, and there was a lot of controversy back in 1952 over that. But at the end of uh, his remarks, which I would uh, tell you they're fantastic, um, he was asked by an often posted reporter, that's the equivalent to the New York Times, um, you, know, you know, you talked a lot about the potential for nuclear war. I mean, how does the United States uh, ensure that um, we're victorious if there is a World War III? Well, the general had served in World War I uh, alongside General Pershing. He was the chief of staff of the Army during the Second World War, um, and the Secretary of Defense um, after that. Um, see, he had uh, some knowledge, right? And uh, his comments were, well, the only way that we can guarantee victory uh, is to ensure that we never fight that war. And the only way we do that is through deterrence, and the only deterrence um, that will be able to do that is a strong Navy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Brent, next question's to you, sir. And so uh, in your book, you argue for a national maritime strategy to bolster the, the nation's naval shipbuilding and a better able to sustain a crisis or conflict with China. And so is that just about building a bigger Navy or what's, what else is involved in this national maritime strategy? Uh, thanks, Tom. The, uh, one of the first things that kind of, when you start digging into why we're not able to build naval ships as fast or on time or on budget, uh, if you set aside like the money and the, and the budgeting part of it, there's a capacity problem there. And the capacity problem is shipyard workers. It's also the ports themselves, like graving docks and dry docks. And then you start to look at and say, well, if the, sh the naval shipbuilders are having problem recruiting people and finding capacity and expanding it, why don't they just go to the commercial sector? And what you normally find, what you find out by that is that's empty. That's, that's also tapped out. They've been building ships and servicing a market that's more domestically focused. And that domestically focused market doesn't suit, suit well to building ships that can sustain a Navy over there, uh, forward deployed. Nor can it ensure that you've got a large group of people, you know, young people coming into the maritime sector and working, blowing into the commercial shipbuilding uh, and maintenance, and then moving over into the naval shipbuilding. 
And so the, the, mar the national maritime strategy, the, the reason that's needed is you need to get the maritime administration invigorated and energized to go back to their, their core principles and reason for being, and that is making sure the nation has the maritime sea lift, the shipping, and the shipping sector that in a time of war can support the nation in a wartime economy at this, as well as support military operations. This has only devolved down into things like uh, SRF, you know, reserve fleets that can support a military operation like a desert storm, which by the way, in the early 90s, we were inadequate to support that in the, in the outset. It's so much more than that when you're dealing with the China threat. You have to be able to sustain a, a wartime economy, moving material to support your industries here in the United States, moving fuel and energy to the fleet forward, uh, as well as munitions. So these are, this is the type of shipbuilding the nation hasn't really had since the 80s. And so a national maritime strategy will galvanize maritime administration, which has been uh, absent largely from this. It's, their mandate has kind of moved the Department of the Navy to galvanize as an advocate for commercial shipbuilding as that it serves national defense. Uh, those two things, you know, those two are the big moving pieces that just haven't come together. Yeah. Uh, and so that national maritime strategy hopefully will bring that together, uh, energize a lot of people to see that this is a future sector that's got a lot of lucrative opportunities, new jobs, new technologies like the unmanned systems that people will really want to be a part of something new. And that's another piece that's often missed. If you're not going to attract people to something that's a tough work environment where it's really doing things from like the 1970s and 1980s, you want people, people want to join something that's cutting edge that is also going to be very, very important for the nation's well-being. And so, you know, I'm an Army guy, so I'm at a disadvantage on this stage here. So the Maritime <laughs> Administration is yeah. in the Department of Transportation. Okay, how about that, huh? And, and so this is where you get to this idea that we, it can't just be the Pentagon's problem, this yeah. national maritime strategy, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Ambassador, this, this question for you. When you were the Secretary of the Navy, you advocated to establish a first fleet. And as many of you probably know, the, the Navy organizes itself for war fighting in terms of fleets. What, what led you to this conclusion that we need a first fleet? Well, uh, you know, there's been uh, a lot of discussion about uh, how organiz organizations uh, are created um, and then, you know, how you operate those organizations. Every time I've ever come into any enterprise, I've looked to see if it's running as efficiently, as effectively as it can. Um, when we created our current concept of a fleet forces command, it was to take the responsibility of the Chief of Naval Operations and move it one echelon down so that the Fleet Forces Commander would have the responsibility to operate all of our operational forces around the globe, um, including the responsibility for uh, having command and control of the Pacific Fleet. Um, well, that caused some consternation within the Department of the Navy uh, for many years. Um, and so they came to an understanding where they would coexist and continue to uh, functioned separately. Um, and one of the concepts that I explored was moving away from having a Pacific fleet altogether, although my wife told me that that would be um, sheer uh, folly uh, for the Secretary of the Navy to advocate doing away with the Pacific fleet based upon its history and being such a historian. But I thought if we were going to empower the Fleet Forces Command to have command and control of all of um, our operational fleets, then we could do that within um, within the uh, use of numbered fleets, which then led me to think about how we have a greater presence um, in, the, uh, 
in the Pacific AOR. Um, today, the Seventh Fleet has a responsibility to operate from the Arctic Circle in the Pacific all the way around to the Arabian Gulf. That's uh, uh, quite a uh, expansive body of water, uh, which I'm sure even an Army general could <laughs> recognize that uh, you know that would be hard to maintain command and control of that. So therein lied uh, my thoughts around creating a new numbered fleet that would work in tandem with the Seventh Fleet, but have responsibility um, for the South China Sea and then moving into the Indian Ocean, which has become uh, much more important to us in the last decade. Um, as again, a rise in India has become you know, a closer uh, ally. Um, I thought it would be a good uh, thought to you know, put our flag in a place where um, there are a lot of rising tensions, and we need to be able to maintain that forward presence. So I'm still an advocate for a first fleet, which we disestablished in 1973, and I'm hoping that we can reestablish it. Because I'm tired of jokes. Everybody asks me, you know, we have a second fleet, third fleet, fourth fleet, fifth fleet, sixth fleet, and a seventh fleet. What happened to the first fleet? Did it sink? Yeah, exactly. You Army guys yeah. like to tease me about that one. <laughs> well, I mean, we have the same problem in the Army. You know, we don't have like a, you know, a a sixth division anymore, you know, and so we kind of skip around based on history of things. So, um, Brent, I'm going to uh, jump to a question that intrigues me, and that is we talked about the Chinese Navy has the biggest Navy in the world, I guess 400 ships or around that uh, neighborhood, and so do we, does the United States need to match the Chinese ship for ship? Do we need a 400-ship Navy, or what's, what's the right size and type Navy for the United States? Uh, so there's a lot in, in that question to, to to hit on, and it's so the, the short answer is even if we wanted to, we're not going to be able to get there in the time for this decade, which means we have to play differently. We have to think smarter, which is the naval statecraft concept, and playing more aggressively in the economic statecraft tied it, you know, enabled by the Navy. So, got to change the way you operate. Uh, you have to change where you operate, and to kind of piggyback on the ambassador's comments about first fleet. When you have a fleet and you have a three-star admiral and a small staff, not necessarily a fleet as large as seven fleets, 50 or 70 ships to include the deployed ones, but even just having a flagship moving around, you start to engage and you draw attention. You give the diplomats and U.S. embassies in the re region, you know, something, to, another tool that they can use, and it, it, has a, it has a synergetic effect. It multiplies the, the influence the U.S. has. So you have to change the way you operate. You need, at the same time, to build a larger navy. Uh, now, to get down to the, the brass tacks of this, do you need to match, uh, you, know, sh you know, whole numbers to whole number? More importantly, firepower to firepower. It's a little bit more nuanced. Is like, what does the navy need to do in the Western Pacific? The most challenging, the most dangerous, though the odds may be going up, but they're still fairly low today, uh, is a war over Taiwan. That is a conflict that will see the U.S. in full-on major warfare. Not necessarily nuclear, certainly the threat of nuclear in there. So the Navy needs to be postured, and it needs to be armed in a way to deny the Chinese any political success in such an invasion of Taiwan. So submarines have an outsized advantage right now. I'd say that. I was up in, at the Naval War College recently. There's reasons to doubt that the United States will always have that advantage. And we can assume that. So you also have aircraft carriers, mobile airfields. Now, the Chinese will have a dog of a time trying to target an airfield that moves around. Easy to get Anderson, easy to get Kadena and Okinawa with the ballistic missiles. Much more hard to get an aircraft carrier. So there's an inherent advantage. And the U.S. is playing an over-there game. 
And so aircraft carriers, that's another one, but we have to change the way we operate and the way we design aircraft carriers. And in the book, we talk at length about the air wing of the future uh, with more unmanned aircraft, also partnering more with shore, longer range shore aircraft, and then also with Army and the Marine Corps. So the Navy has to also be considered and integrated into this joint construct because even if we had wanted to, we're not going to be able to match ship for ship for the Chinese. Uh, but we need a larger fleet to have a healthy fleet, most importantly. The operational tempo, what we're putting our sailors through, is excessive. Uh, 10-month deployments really needs to become a legacy once again. And we need to get back to six-month deployments for all ships. Uh, to get to that, you have to have more ships. Yeah. And you need, most importantly, to give the commanding officers discretionary time. This is something the Chinese Navy doesn't necessarily get because they put their senior minders whenever they go out and do operations. You need to allow the commanding officers to, to basically train their crews and have to, CO's discretionary time. And again, the only way you're going to do that, get that white space, that open time on their operational calendars, is you need more ships. And so in the book, we talk, there's a mathematical equation for it. I won't bore you with it. I'm a nuke by training, so I love formulas. Uh, the, the proposal in the book is upwards of 570 ships. But this decade, in order to normalize the fleet, you're going to need to get well above 355 as soon as possible. Okay. I drew from that the importance of the Army. Yes. <laughs> the Army's very important. Exactly. Thank you. So, Ambassador, this question for you. you when you were the Secretary of the Navy, you uh, released a 30-year shipbuilding plan. I think that's an annual requirement. I'm, or, yeah. And, and they're always accompanied by controversy. The, the, the most recent one came out a month or two ago, and they've taken to this new thing of providing three options. There's a, you know, like the three bears kind of thing, the, a cold, a warm, and a hot. Um, can you talk about the hardest part for you when you were leading the Navy about determining the, the best optimal fleet size and the composition of it? And was there, were you getting any kind of you know, outside influence from anybody, you know, either your uniform staff or the political side of the house, to have that 30-year shipbuilding plan come out a certain way? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, I mean, one of the things I think a lot of secretaries struggle with, and thankfully I had a great mentor in John Lehman, um, going in is the balance between those who have spent their careers in uniform, you know, as you did, leading uh, your service, um, and all of a sudden a Secretary of the Navy being parachuted in, right? right? Yeah. That may or may not have that background. Yeah. And thankfully, a lot of our secretaries, like our current secretary, has a uh, background as a naval officer. Um, I was the first ever uh, former flag officer to be a confirmed Secretary of the Navy. Um, but what I took from what John and others had, uh, had kind of encouraged me on was the balance between the secretary and the CNO, right, and their respective staffs. Um, and understanding that in that would determine how well uh, the machine would, would operate. So the 30-year shipbuilding plan for us was one that you know, in the SecNav's office, we were taking some rudder steer from above because Secretary Esper was very interested in that, right? Because he would have to own it. Um, but also, you know, those that had dedicated their career, uh, you know, in uniform uh, and were the subject matter experts. Um, you know, it's very sexy to build a lot of surface combatants, right? Uh, or even submarines, you know? I mean, those are some of the things that you, uh, and as Brent has outlined in the book, 
um, you know, that's where the power projection comes from. But you can't power project unless you have all those auxiliary craft, right? And then, of course, for the Secretary of the Navy, you're also the Secretary of the Marine Corps. Yeah. So you have the whole amphibious piece, which yeah. becomes very important in General Berger's vision of taking the Marine Corps back to sea and making it a real amphibious force, uh, a sea soldier. Um, which I'm a huge advocate, continue to be, uh, because that's the differential between you know the Army and the Marine Corps, yeah. right? Is being able to fight and power project from sea to shore. Um, so taking all that in, and then kind of being the ringmaster, if you will, of uh, what's the right size, what are the right number of ships. Uh, Brett's right. We won't be able to get to where we need to um, as quickly as we'd like. Why? Because. Um, you know, our military industrial base has um, just shrunk in the last uh, 25 years to a point that we can't keep pace. I think the last figure I saw is for every ship we build, the Chinese built seven. Yeah. Um, and their largest shipyard is more capable of building more ships faster than all of our ship shipyards combined. And that's very problematic. So going back to what Brent said, we got to think outside the box. We've got to come up with a different way to be able to build uh, combatants that would allow us to get out of, that's the way it's always been done. I'm a huge advocate for the new frigate um, and very important um, in, the, uh, in the fleet mix in the future. Um, but Brent touched on this and he talks about it in his book about the autonomous capabilities. Um, I've been spending a lot of time since I left office in this space because that's where the real potential is for the United States Navy to keep up with um, the growing uh, challenge from uh, the PLAN. Yeah, great, thank you. So let's, let's go to our audience. I've got more questions, but I'm interested in what y'all is on your minds. Let's go to our, um, we are, I'm great. Thank you so much. We have a question right up here, up front right this lady here. Uh, and then we'll go to our online. You got some stuff there? Okay, good. So, uh, Captain Sadler, I, I really appreciated your discussion because it, it brought together a lot of things for me. I was having a, a nice talk yesterday with a, a colleague about um, the, the sort of somewhat insidious nature of economic A2AD, hmm. that we pay attention to this more kinetic format within the military, but that they, there may be blockages that, that we aren't even particularly paying attention to. And when you talked about economic statecraft, I was really, really thinking about, you know, how does that play out? Yeah. Um, and so um, Rear Admiral uh, Rommel Ong, uh, formerly of the, the Philippine Navy, had said yesterday, he was talking about Reed Bank mm. uh, and its importance in the Philippines because of the Melampaya gas field running out to their economic sovereignty. But someone had commented that the problem is that the oil and gas industry is not going to take on the risk that it would take. And and so with our, our current posture of seeing the Philippines as a potential staging ground for a Taiwan scenario and as our sort of reason for being there in the first place as our, our very important mm. treaty ally is part of what you're thinking about with this naval statecraft keeping our, our ally and our, our Philippine ally in particular whole. Uh, absolutely. So the United States is a big country, so it has the luxury of having cylinders of excellence. National security being a separate group, independent from the diplomats, di separated from the economic. But middle-sized countries and smaller countries, they don't have the luxury, they don't have the capacity to view things independently like that. And then they also have to graft over the politics, no surprise, to, to a democracy like the United States, that that also is the glue that binds those things together. 
So in the Philippines case, they have to think of the security because national sovereignty, there's a nationalism aspect in the Philippines on, on these islands and these atolls in the South China Sea. But they also have to be thinking about their economic security as well. And so they'll glom the two together and then they'll approach the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense doesn't know how to deal with that economic piece. So that's how, that's, that's at the core. And I, I witnessed this time and time again, going back to being a Flag Lieutenant 7th Fleet, 99 to 2000, again in the Philippines, uh, that we have to be more attuned to the fact that our partners, and, the, and really this is a competition over partners across the world. It's not just a, a fight of missiles against missiles and ships. It's also day to day. Um, and so those partners, we need, to, we need to be able to provide a much better prop, cost proposition to them. Because if all we do is provide a military presence and no economic benefit, then we lose to the Chinese every time. But if we provide an economic, maybe not equal to what the Chinese are willing to write blank checks for, but an economic pathway ahead for you know, maximal economic development, you know, maximal for the population, we're more likely to, to seize that high ground and have those partners closer to us and our way of viewing open markets and free trade. Yeah, and said another way, uh, if it's a tie between us and China, people are going to take us because they prefer, you know, um, uh, U.S. values and things like that. So we at least have to get ourselves in the competitive space. That's right. Um, Solomon Islands is a cautionary tale on that because the Chinese are willing to, if you only need to get a few decision makers in your pocket, that's an easy check to write, and they do. Um, and so we have to have, make a much more compelling case more broadly to the, our partner countries. We need to be able to put that message out in an, in an ex, very explicit way. Uh, the Philippines is doing this right now when they put reporters on their ships. When they go out and they, they're being harassed by the Chinese Coast Guard and the Maritime Militia. So that's got to get out there, and then the people will speak up. I witnessed this again back in Kuala Lumpur as a defense attaché. When the news started to spread of what was actually happening in Hemben Toda, and the, the financing, the refinancing, that the Sri Lankans were going to lose their sovereignty over this, this piece of land in this port, the Malaysians got upset. The, the, a lot of people in the region got upset. And they started to relook and to reassess their own engagement, economic engagement with the Chinese. So don't underestimate the, the fact that the town's going to talk. You don't have to always be the one speaking. The American diplomats sometimes being a little quiet and letting the audience talk amongst themselves, the audience being your partner countries, come to the right, will come to a conclusion that in their best interest, the United States is the best choice. Yep, good. Let's go to our online audience. Uh, Wilson, what, uh, what kind of question do you have for us? Sure. So first from the online audience. Uh, in the context of competition with China, what are the most pressing uh, capability gaps that the U.S. Navy faces and has to correct? Do you want to take that first, Ambassador? Well, again, size matters, right? Um, there is a, uh, a quality and quantity. Um, and it's interesting what the Chinese Navy has focused on. Um, it's predominantly building large capital ships. Um, it's building aircraft carriers. Um, you know, I like to think, and again, I haven't read Brent's book. I'm looking forward to it. But we can't think like we've historically thought. Um, an aircraft carrier, uh, although if Admiral Aquilino, my academy classmates, listening to me, um, a career aviator and the Indo-PACOM commander, um, you know, I, I think that the day for an aircraft carrier has kind of uh, gone over the horizon. It is a unbelievable, capable 
vessel from which you can power project, but it is not the be-all and end-all uh, to the Navy as we think it has uh, or is or has been. Um, it's kind of like when we woke up on the morning of uh, December 8th and realized that the battleship was now um, you know, lo no longer uh, king of the fleet. Um, I think that day is coming for the aircraft carriers. So we have to think um, in a new manner of how we still take aircraft to sea, which are going to be important, but how we mitigate some of the risk of putting all of those resources aboard one flight deck. Um, meanwhile, the Chinese are building aircraft carriers, right? Yeah. So why? So I would say it is, you know, as Brent was just answering your great question, um, it's influence, it's power projection. Um, and it is the ability to put an aircraft carrier uh, strike group, uh, you know, in the littoral waters of a, a second or third tier nation and having that ability to influence events ashore. Um, that's where China is. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think we need to look at ways to parry that. Um, we need to go to some of their weak spots um, where they haven't necessarily made the kind of investments. Um, for me, that would uh, be a larger submarine force. Um, you know, we are the best in the world, um, our submarines. So that's where I would focus. Great. And Brent? I would just add that um, we're in an and situation. I mean, you need higher budgets and you need uh, more political attention. You need more aircraft carriers and you need more submarines. Uh, it's unfortunate because of the situation that we're facing with this massive militarization and buildup on the part of the Chinese and the fact that we've got a lot more problems now. They're all popping their heads up. You've got the North Koreans. They have a ballistic submarine now, potentially a nuclear-capable submarine-launched ballistic missile. So now you've got another mission that you have to maintain presence there. You've got a Chinese Navy we've talked about. Russia's Navy has not been really seriously touched by this war in Ukraine. So it's all over the place as well, not in the numbers, not in the capacities as the Chinese, but they're there. And the Iranians have been running proxy wars for years now. And that may actually heat up again in the near future. So there's so many challenges that make it that you have to have a larger navy, that you have to have an and. You need destroyers and submarines and. Um, but the most pressing gap, when you look at where the requirements are, and the type of operations that the Navy would have to sustain at sea, forward, under threat, uh, it's your smaller ships, it's the frigate, uh, it's your auxiliaries, uh, your oilers uh, that need, and your submarine tenders, uh, especially with the AUKUS deal with the Australians. These are things that, again, don't get the attention. They're not, they're not the pointy end of the spear, so to speak, but they're what actually gets the spear to target. Amen. And, um, that's probably the most urgent for additional at and attention, not or. And don't forget amphibs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about amphibs in Congress this year. I've heard. Yes, sir. Up in the front here, please. Keep oh, going, oh, right Mike. Yo, yeah, oh, passing it down. Good job. <laughs> uh, you, you talked about uh, us being joint. That uh, it takes uh, diplomacy, and you talked about Navy intelligence. Do you see mm. the uh, the Navy, the DoD? in concert with the State Department, trying to rec and fully recognizing the both the threat, but also the need for outreach and uh, not being so much adversary, but being grouped. You see military and the State Department in this administration currently working 
uh, towards the things we're talking about, or is there some disjoint between the, the two? Um, I can take this first, but again, I think it animates the ambassador's uh, point on the first fleet. Uh, what I witnessed, both uh, when I was in Dupaycom, 7th Fleet, and then also in Kuala Lumpur, is an organizational structure that's not adequate to the world that we're in right now. So no matter how much awareness, uh, you get these e examples of success, but it's driven by personalities, uh, where force of personality, and if they're in the right place, they can drive an interagency effort, the State Department, the intelligence community, and the military, all and the commerce in some occasions, working all together for towards a singular goal. And an example of this, it's in the book, and I come back to it often, is the West Kapala incident. Uh, I was already on the way out of government when this started to unfold in the spring of 2020. Uh, the good juicy part starts as I was retired and I was here at Heritage. So I don't, I don't have all the access to what was going on, but I talked with General Stilwell, who was at State Department at the time. And I had him here. He was one of the first speakers that I actually brought into Heritage. This West Kapala incident was a textbook case of applying back a pre maritime presence backed by very clearly articulated diplomacy and economic focus, economic statecraft. Now, the West Kapala was a survey ship chartered by Malaysia surveying for oil exploration. It's extremely important for the economy and the budget for the Malaysian government. Uh, we normally wouldn't comment on that. Seven Fleet did. He said, we are in the South China Sea to, to enable our partners in their pursuit of their rights and their economic exclusion or their waters. And that galvanized the, re the region. Um, then you had the Secretary of State months later, as this is still unfolding in July, say that China's claims in the South China Sea are wholly illegal. Now, the sequencing's important, but it was by luck. And that's because there wasn't an organizing principle, there wasn't a structure that encouraged that. Um, the, other, the other thing, and back to the numbered fleets, is if you've got a numbered fleet that's more regionally focused, now you've got a place that the embassies can call up or the fleet can actually engage on a more routine basis to identify opportunities to push back. Uh, too often, we are reactive. So I hope that gets to the answer yeah. to the question. Ambassador, anything you want to add to that? No, I think uh, Brent kind of summed it up pretty well. I would say that uh, one of the pillars for us when I was still in uniform you know, was looking at the Navy as a global force for good, right? Because when you think about the opportunities that arise from uh, natural disasters, um, you know, the Navy is perfectly positioned to be able to be there um, very quickly. Um, not only our carriers, but also our hospital ships. And uh, so looking at that and having that as an element of statecraft, I think, is important as well, which, again, you know, when we begin to look at the competition between which types of ships we need to build, well, we need a new hospital ship. Um, you know, uh, and, and again, there's a, an element in that. To how does that compete against, you know, building two frigates? Um, it goes back to what Brent said, right? We need and, and, right? And we don't have the resources. Um, I used to say it's like sitting around your kitchen table and determining how you're going to spend your family budget. You know, well, we want to do this, we want to do that, we want to, and you only have so many resources. Same story. Yep. Good, thank you. So let's go back to our online audience, Wilson. So, Captain Sadler, one of our online viewers from the Embassy of Japan asks if you could repeat your definition of naval statecraft and give some examples of what we can be doing yeah. in the Pacific. Um, so the simplest definition of naval statecraft is the synthesis of uh, forceful diplomacy, proactive diplomacy, 
that is uh, supporting a naval and an enabling a forward naval presence. A presence that is over there is engaged uh, and also tightly tied to the economic uh, centers of the target partner country of the region. So that, that, that's in the nutshell of the definition. Uh, examples of this, uh, friends from the Philippines will recall the Subic Bay negotiations when Hanjin, which was managing the port, it's a strategic port in the South China Sea, opening on the South China Sea, to try to enable a deal that would allow Hanjin to be bought out uh, and to prevent a Chinese takeover of that port. Now, there's a lot of naval presence uh, that goes through there, so there was a need to maintain that maintenance. Um, that was a, that's a case study. Equatorial Guinea, uh, the Chinese tried to get a base there, uh, came out a little over a year ago. Uh, that they were trying to do this. Uh, but when you look at what the economics of Equatorial Guinea, it's maritime security. All of their oil resources are from the seafloor. And so uh, piracy, doing counter piracy, and also exposing the Chinese activities of illegal fishing, and also their, their kind of nefarious ways of trying to buy off influence, uh, again, making decisions that are not in the interest of the country. So that's another case, Equatorial Guinea, that played out. And then, I'd say a place where it didn't play out well, Solomon Islands. Um, it's no surprise that uh, we didn't have an embassy there. Uh, we hadn't really gone there very often in, in port visits. It's not a place our sailors want to go, so therefore we didn't go there. We needed to go there. Uh, the South and Central Pacific is the soft underbelly of America's Pacific strategies and Pacific posture, military posture. And so we're having to rediscover this. So clearly a naval, na a maritime, in important uh, place along sea lanes that would be critical for a war if it were to happen. Also, didn't have the diplomatic footprint, uh, didn't have the naval presence. More importantly, we didn't really have a plan for how we're going to engage them economically. And so th that's, a, that's an, also an example of a failure. Great question. So I think we are down to our last question. And I th it would think well, we'll try and get you both in. Let's, but let's go to the gentleman up in the front there. There you go. Thanks so much. Uh, Charles Sills Defense Leadership Forum. Speaking of the military industrial base, which we need to fund to build more ships of all kinds, the funding goes back to Congress. And Congress is dependent in great measure over the longer run on public opinion, public affairs. So this is just a thought. But when you're talking about uh, getting the public behind national strategies that we need to, to accomplish. Um, the present slogan, if you will, SIOP, uh, Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Program, is not exactly a catch phrase. <laughs> so just, just a thought. We've, we've instituted, the administration has instituted the CHIPS Act because of our supply chain vulnerabilities. What about a SHIPS Act? Just a thought. There you go. And I, and I will, exactly. I'm not yeah. going to toot Brent's horn, but Brent has written an entire paper mm. on what he calls the Naval Act of 2023. And so if you go on, go online and look for Naval Act, you'll find a paper by Brent talking about why we need a very specific, focused piece of legislation. I will mention, you know, one of the things that you got me going is um, we don't communicate, I don't sense the federal government really communicating with the American people on these topics. And the reason that comes to my mind, in this auditorium a month or two ago, we had an event about uh, President Reagan's Star Wars initiative, strategic defense initiative. And as part of the start of that, 
we played a three or four minute clip of President Reagan from the Oval Office talking about this challenge we had of not being able to even stop any incoming nuclear weapons. And for 30 minutes, President Reagan made it a very, very articulate case about why we needed to do di different things for missile defense. And I cannot recall in recent times, any president making a case in, from the Oval Office or anywhere on an aspect of national security. And I think that's a part of the reason we're in the state we are now. Um, so let's go for you, for if we can make it quick, because I'm, I'm trying to get this in in two minutes, sir. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for a fantastic discussion. I'm so glad you brought up the West Capella, and I'm so glad Dr. Wilhelm brought up uh, Admiral Ong and his, his excellent writings. Uh, Admiral Ong's uh, article for the Maritime County, will be joining you both in the, in the Maritime Counterinsurgency Project in the next couple of months over in the Naval Institute proceedings. I wanted to um, come back to an issue in terms of, with, as you've discussed, naval statecraft and this competition phase campaigning. Uh, I wanted to pull on a thread that you've, you've talked and written about it in the past, about how that can, you know, there's too often a lot of people in this town, they love to make false, present false choices that, oh, it's either that competition phase campaigning uh, and you know, naval statecraft, maritime counterinsurgency type of thing in the South China Sea, uh, or pre preparation for a high-end war over Taiwan. Could you talk a little bit more about the nexus and between those two com potentially competing imperatives and how that competition phase posture can support pre you know, preparations for and, and deterrence of a high-end war? Uh, thanks, Hunter. Good to see you. And, and again, Leslie, also good to see you here as well today. Um, this is this type of thinking, this or thinking, where we will only prepare for the phase three or the war fight, the high-end war fight, and all this other peacetime stuff that's just, we'll just make do with what we can. That's uh, got us to this situation where we're losing access to ports, we're losing economic uh, entry to, to markets increasingly as the Chinese move in, and they leverage every tool. Um, so that's one, that's one thing uh, on this. The, um, and you have to do both. And that's what the naval statecraft idea is, to, is, because we're in the situation where you can't build the Navy to do the war fight, to have all the deterrence, the massive. So you have to do things differently. But at the same time, you have to compete in the day-to-day, -day because the Chinese don't want to fight. Uh, war is an inherently risky endeavor, and the Chinese Communist Party is risk-adverse. They're, you know, largely, as an engineer, I kind of understand their mentality. Move very gradually, set conditions, test. Make sure your, your, your assumptions of your adversary are true, understand how they react, and then take it to the next level. And it's, they do this time and time again. So we have to build a military that's more attuned to the day-to-day. -day. The structures are a part of that, which for whatever reason, politically, or that's just the way we did it last year, we're gonna do it again the same way. We gotta break out of that bureaucratic inertia. And that's probably the biggest adversary more than money on doing things differently. Yeah. Um, but. We do need to have that capacity at the end of the day, because if we don't, we'll relive the British uh, mistakes of the late 30s in building a bomber force without bombs. <laughs> and the Nazis then called the bluff, and there was nothing there. It's not a hollow force. It's a hollow deterrence. All right. Ambassador, last word on this? Well, I, uh, I think Brett's done a great job of uh, raising the issue of why a Navy is important. Um, it's important to our security. It's important to our freedoms. It's important to our allies. 
Um, and we need to have this dialogue. We need to have this discussion. And we need to figure out how we move it into, as the general said, a more public space uh, so that the average American can then speak to their congressman um, about the importance of building a bigger Navy. So, great. Bravo, Zulu. Thank well you done. very much. Yeah. Come so, ahead. please join me in thanking our guests. Thanks so much for joining.